Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor, and we are entering the fifth or sixth week of the coronavirus quarantine, depending on when you locked down. I hope everybody's doing well as is possible. If you are in a labor struggle, I hope that you are giving your boss hell. Uh, and if you are finding yourself at risk from this disease or from the economic disaster that it spawned, I wish you well as well. Uh, I always like to start the show with a little, uh, little, little bit of humanity, a little dose of humanity, because you know we got a lot of serious, heady political topics to discuss in the coming hour. But uh, a lot of people are struggling out there, so just a, a quick word of solidarity and uh, support. I hope you all are well. Uh, moving on, got a really, really exciting episode for you all lined up today. This episode is long in the making. I've been in conversation with my guest for about a year uh, leading up to this book, the publication of this book. It's been a long time coming as well. This is a, a man who is the offspring of, a, of, a, of an individual who was on last week, Adolph Reed Jr., uh, legend himself, uh, frequent guest of DPS. I know you guys know and love him, and you're going to love his son as well, Toure Reed. Toure has recently written a book hot off the presses. It's called Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism. If there ever was a book that was in line with my anti-essentialism series part two, this would be it. That's an understatement. Uh, this book is uh, mandatory reading. It's a textbook, if you will. Um, and that's not for nothing because I've learned a great deal of what I understand to be anti-essentialism or anti-race reductionism from this guy. So, uh, Toure, I've, I've fluffed you up enough. How you doing? Thanks for joining us on DPS. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me, Adam. I uh, don't know that I deserve that great introduction, but I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. This is why I love you guys because uh, that, that whole cadre of anti-race reductionism, the this, this serious uh, scholars of black politics, you guys – you know, you're, you're criminally, you're, you're criminally like uh, humble, I'll say. We could use a little bit of the flamboyance that goes on at the opposite end of the debate. Uh, your, our, our sparring partners, if you will, who are, are pretty good at catching the, the PR cred and, and uh, puffing themselves up all sorts of types of ways. And so I think maybe I could play the role as a, a of hype man here and, and, and try to reverse that trend. But uh, <laughs> talk to oh, us yeah. a little bit about – your career, you are a professor of 20th century U.S. and Afro-American history at Illinois State University. You, of course, have many essays and outlets that our listeners will be familiar with, like Catalyst, uh, let's labor, nonsite.org, Jacobin, Nation, New Republic, all of those types of things. Your first book was uh, a scholarly treatment of black politics. Of course, it has uh, political implications and trajectories and suggestions, but it was scholarly. It was called Not Alms, But Opportunity, The Urban League and Politics of Racial Uplift from 1910 to 1950. So talking about the urban, the National Ur the Urban League, um, this, of course, is uh, a large part of the beginning chapters of this book. And you situate this long move from... Let's call it um, – how do you want to call it? How do you want to characterize the, the beginning of this book and, and as it opens up, your starting point? Let's start there. So I guess you could go one of two ways. In the introduction, I lay out what's in effect a narrative that centers on liberals' long retreat from class-based understandings of inequality. 
and uh, make the point, uh, taking off from Senator Sanders' 2016 presidential bid or his bid for the Democratic nomination anyway, that Sanders' platform in 2016, and much the same could be said of 2020, looked quite a lot like the best of New Deal liberalism. And there was a kind of weirdness to the tendency among the punditry, particularly the liberal punditry, or, or and even some of the uh, left identitarians, dismissal of Sanders' platform as um, sort of hot, pie-in-the-sky, anti- um, you know, at odds with American, core American values and the like, because if you took a historical perspective on Sanders' platform, again, it really called for, he was really calling for a return to the best of New Deal liberalism, or maybe the best that America has had to offer its citizenry. So I take off from there, again, with the Sanders campaign uh, as a vehicle for, or, or treating the Sanders campaign within the context of the history of American liberalism, and pointing out that what's happened over the last, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years or so is that American liberals have moved away from a class understanding, a class-based understanding of inequities, particularly racial inequities, uh, in favor of what I call race reductionist frameworks, um, which you know include a lot of, of, of culturalist frameworks, like culture of poverty frameworks, but even constructs like, um, I don't know, structural racism or implicit bias have come to serve as sort of race reductionist frameworks. Right, right. And so essentially we've, your, your opening chapter here, the introduction rather, is a contextualization of how we got here in this moment. And perhaps I even jumped ahead by going back into the roots of New Deal liberalism, uh, the, the, this kind of um, historical uh, foundation that you're trying to recover throughout the course of this book, uh, trying to set this thing back on its feet once more. But we're really going, we're really jumping ahead of ourselves. I don't know, maybe that's uh, a psychological coping mechanism, being that uh, we're standing in, in a time that, that looks uh, bleaker than it has, at least in, in several years, with Bernie Sanders having stepped out of the race, with Joe Biden reasserting his mainstream neoliberal democratic kind of triangulationist and even really arch conservative messaging that we've seen coming out of his campaign ads this week, uh, you know, going hard against China, whipping up xenophobic, you know, kind of nationalistic fervor against China, very reminiscent of the the Russian obsession that we saw from the Democrats over the past few years against Trump, which has largely been ineffective. Um, so, you know, this book, if nothing else, I think will will be a balm for a lot of my listeners <laughs> because it takes us back to a time that where a different set of politics were on the table. And that's what Bernie Sanders really represents. And, and as you mentioned, you know, his critics argue that he's race reductionist or sorry, class reductionist, rather people like Ta-Nehisi Coates and others. They argue that uh, he's anachronistic, that he's hearkening back to a time that is long gone. It's no longer relevant. And moreover, it doesn't actually address the problems of race and white supremacy that they, that they you know, uh, try to put front and center in a really problematic way. And instead, they hearken back to a time of ethnic pluralism, to a time of alleged black radicalism that has been debunked and criti criticized, at least by the likes of your colleagues and comrades, Cedric Johnson and your father as and many others as well. So let's 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 carry that trajectory of the book forward here. What are the origins of New Deal liberalism and how do some of these black 
representative organizations find themselves intersecting with that stream of politics? How about this? Um, how about I make the point that maybe the origins, and this isn't this isn't a bold statement. Lots of academics have made this point that the origins of the modern civil rights movement can, in many ways, be traced back to New Deal liberalism, and that's maybe one of the ironic things about the tendency today to dismiss, um, you know, sort of class-oriented, uh, public good-informed efforts at uh, bringing about racial equality is that, again, without the New Deal, it's it's not likely that we would have had the modern civil rights movement, whatever its limitations. And the modern civil rights movement would certainly you know, reflect the limitations uh, imposed on it, in part, in large part by the Cold War, right? I mean, when most people think of the, the modern civil rights movement, they think of the 50s and 60s, right? That's, that's generally how we how we define it. And, and again, that stretch of it, particularly the 1950s stretch of it, reflected Cold War sensibilities. But if we take it back to the New Deal and World War II, we can see that black activists had, at, shaped by the sensibilities of the New Deal, had really stressed the crucial or maybe central role to econ of economic inequality in shaping the parameters of racial inequities. And for people who are alive in the 1930s, and we'll just keep it there, I, I would say that the relationship between economic uh, inequality, between capitalism, let's say, and racial inequality would have been as clear as the sun and noon, at noon in Ecuador in June, uh, insofar as if one had suffered through sharecropping, then one would have had some sort of intuitive understanding of the relationship of race as a system or racism as an ideological construct that's, that was intended uh, to really buttress the or rationalize the permanent exploitation of working people. If one had worked in, you know, a pre-FEPC era or, or pre-EEOC era factory, um, right? I mean, so if one had been a factory worker in the teens, 20s, 30s, one would, once again, a black person would once again have had a clear window onto the functionality of race as an ideology that shaped labor markets, right? Uh, insofar as black workers at a factory, at a given factory, you know, suffered, un were paid a wage often enough for the same work uh, that was lower than whites. But but the presence of blacks as a, a secondary labor pool exerted downward pressure on the wages of whites. So it would have been really easy experientially to appreciate the relationship between race and class in that era. But but it would but the understanding of that relationship between race and class. Uh, became in, in the inherent, if you will, relationship between race and class and that, that framework would have been, been politicized by the New Deal, right? Which empowered workers, uh, to demand for the public good, fair play, right? Through unionization. And between the New Deal's efforts at, uh, industrial democracy and the fact that there was a real left in the United States at, at that point. And so the efforts of, of leftists through the communist, the American Communist Party or the Congress of Industrial Organizations to nurture interracial working class solidarity, you know, it, it would have resonated with people, right? I mean, it would have politicized the, the blacks understanding 
of the relationship, the intimate relationship between race and class. Race is an ideology uh, that that reifies economic exploitation of, of populations. Yeah, as you write in your introduction, before I, you know, we I get too far. I'm, I'm putting the cart before the horse a little bit because I just I love this history of of early 20th century sort of black political uh, organizing, the institutions that came up and how they influenced the trajectories of of labor politics and radical, you know, so quasi socialist and certainly social democratic politics. Uh, but but before we get there, you you summarize this really well in the introduction to this book here. You write, uh, those who had claimed that Sanders was following in the long tradition of liberal class reductionists, quote unquote, who have ignored systemic racism's impact on disparities, were both mischaracterizing post-war anti-poverty efforts and misidentifying the root causes of liberal policymakers' inability to redress racial inequality. And so we're talking about a post-war notion of ethnic pluralism and other types of, uh, you know, um, we'll, we'll get there again, I'm putting the cart before the horse. Talk to us a little bit about this kind of more golden age, if you will, I don't know, golden age in terms of prospects, because there are a lot of, there was a lot of racism, a lot of really terrible consequences for all types of, of people in the, in the pre and even intra new deal eras. But you're, you're really hearkening back to a time that is almost entirely forgotten by the liberal commentariat. It, it's a prehistory that you're trying to sort of revivify. Um, why do you think that this this period has been erased from the liberal commentariat's, uh, you know, uh, discursive imagination? I think it's been erased. I, well, I, I would, I think that's a great question. And I would broaden the, the parameters of the erasure. I think that for, for the most part, uh, liberals have erased the way the legacy of the New Deal altogether, right? The, the, the affirmative, the positive legacy of the New Deal. As, it, as the New Deal pertains to race, you know, you can say it's complicated, right? Because blacks very clearly did not benefit equally from, uh, you know, New Deal policies, right? The, the, the rewards uh, associated with the New Deal welfare state were certainly spread on evenly, even if blacks benefited from it. But the fact of the matter is the expansion of the American middle class you know, most notably, perhaps the white middle class, um, but also the black middle class, once you get to the you know, 60s, was the product of a welfare state and and an embrace of, of a government model centered on the public good function of government that liberals in the from the Clinton era forward act as if never happened. Right. Um, and I often say to people uh, uh, I, I said this somewhere recently, maybe in a radio interview, just reflect on the number of times that Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton. Uh, I won't pick on Biden just yet, only because um, he has a host of other problems on the spectrum. But we'll just pick on Bill Clinton, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. The number of times that they referenced affirmatively Ronald Reagan versus the number of times they even mentioned Franklin Roosevelt. And what one would find, I've never sat down and done, you know, this the strict count, right? But what one would find is that they mention Reagan uh, pretty pretty frequently and often enough they rhapsodize about about Reagan uh, and almost never mention Roosevelt. And in more recent years when they do mention 
Roosevelt, what we get is, you know, some reflections on the uneven rewards of the New Deal as a case against class-based universal um, economic redistributive programs. Right, right. That's all too common, isn't it? I think we're, we're going to get to that in just a moment as well. Uh, this kind of this it's almost hegemonic, I would say, is hegemonic assertion that racism is the central impediment to any kind of, um, you know, universalistic working class oriented politics in this country. It's the original sense, kind of an ontological understanding of race. I've done numerous, numerous shows on this. Uh, Regular listeners of DPS will not be uh, strangers to to this to this line of argumentation, but we'll we'll go into it in much more uh, detail. There's an interesting interplay in the, the institutions and the organizations that represented black Americans and black workers in the early 20th century that you kind of narrate in your opening chapter here called Black Progressives. Tell that story. The NAACP somewhat reluctantly gets involved in in more militant uh, trade union politics, in large part thanks to uh, people like uh, Abram Harris and and other trade union militants who who pu- push along their reluctant leadership, reluctant for a number of of reasons, reluctant for you know class reasons, being that a lot of their benefactors. Uh, stood to lose in an environment wherein there was, uh, you know, militancy among black workers and also just kind of a temperament and social status and all the rest of it. Uh, tell that story that you sort of uh, give us the elevator speech on that black progressives chapter. It's so, so important to understand how these institutions came about and influence the trajectories of labor politics in, in, in the New Deal uh, era. Sure. So chapter one uh, centers on impact of New Deal industrial democracy on black politics, right, during the New Deal and and World War II. And the basic point that I make in chapter one is that the New Deal will galvanize even the black middle class to take a sort of working class approach to black politics, right? That in in the years before the New Deal, the dominant model of black politics would be something called clientage politics, which, which the politics of respectability was bound up to, uh, in which, you know, a black leadership class basically negotiates with a white leadership class for charity, uh, charity to be distributed to the masses by way of jobs or housing and the like. Uh, and of course, so, and that, that would be very much what the Urban League's work was modeled on, uh, which is the second oldest civil rights group in America. The NACP's platform, its its civil rights vision, was uh, in the years before the New Deal more militant than the Urban Leagues insofar as the NACP was centered on challenging Jim Crow in the various ways that it could, you know, sort of 14th and 15th Amendment issues. But what it wasn't so much invested in was the economic prospects of blacks, right? Now, one of the reasons the NAACP wasn't so much invested in the economic prospects of blacks in the years before the New Deal was because it had a kind of unspoken, uh, or at least I should say unofficial, it was spoken in the context of, um, you know, communications with each other. But um, the NACP had a kind of unofficial relationship with the National Urban League that was complementary, whereas the NACP focused on, again, sort of legal issues. The Urban League focused on uh, economic issues, right, housing, jobs, etc. And both groups, being essentially liberal by the, the standards of, of their day, certainly run by 
uh, capital P progressives, uh, both groups wanted to avoid duplication of activity. So, you know, again, to be fair to the NACP, it understood the Urban League to be holding in the 19th and 20s to be holding down sort of the economic needs of blacks, right, or at least pursuit of, of economic or material fair play for blacks. When we get to the Great Depression, uh, the NACP finds itself in a really, you know, unfortunate position or, or at least untenable position, which is that more and more black Americans were invested in matters of, you know, economic uh, stability, right? Because we all know that that 25% of the workforce was unemployed. The overall workforce was unemployed during the New Deal. But for blacks, unemployment was substantially higher in cities like New York or or Chicago or uh, Baltimore, I think, uh, and a host of others, black unemployment was somewhere between 40 and 55%. And as more and more blacks, and that that's even looking past the plight of, of, of sharecroppers, but as more and more blacks identify just daily survival as a source of, of concern, uh, you know, the NACP has to sort of reimagine its agenda because the focus on Jim Crow, you know, resonated with blacks, but not to the same extent as being able to, to feed themselves. So in the early 30s, the NACP, uh, as, as you touch upon, had, had really, and this is at the start of the New Deal, 1933-1934, had entertained uh, the prospect of shifting focus, taking a more economic approach, and for a variety of reasons, many of them institutional, uh, it opted not to, uh, at least not until the early 1940s. Um, the institutional reasons it opted, the NAACP opted not to, I think, matter uh, quite a bit. Uh, among other things, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't designed to achieve that end. And in fact, oddly enough, ironically, the National Urban League, that which would, had long been considered to be the more conservative of those two groups. And uh, again, they were, they were the two oldest civil rights groups in America, the NACP founded in 1909, the Urban League founded a year later. The National Urban League, again, which was was long considered to be the more conservative of those two groups, actually did embrace, formally anyway, a labor agenda uh, center that looked very much like what the NAACP had proposed in 1933 and 1934. And, and that would be an agenda that centered on encouraging blacks to embrace trade unionism, encouraging blacks to embrace uh, interracial trade unionism as well. And in the Urban League's case, that, that would come through its workers' councils, uh, which educated blacks on the, on the value of trade unionism. Yeah, for sure. And if people are, if, if, if anybody's interest is seriously piqued by anything that you've just articulated there, I encourage them definitely to check out your first book, uh, once again, Not Alms, But Opportunity, The Urban League and Politics of Racial Uplift, 1910 to 1950. It really narrates that history and makes that kind of counterclaim uh, that that you're suggesting here that that the National Urban League cannot be necessarily understood as having its legacies synonymous with that of say Booker T. Washington. It certainly was on the con- conservative edge of the spectrum of black politics, but it also had some more insurgent um, sort of grassroots elements that very that very quickly found itself converging with the sort of militant uh, trade union sector of 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 these institutions both the NAACP and and others um let's 
talk about the power that they brought to bear on figures like Roosevelt, particularly uh, the, you know, during World War II, 1941. You narrate a really important case here wherein race-specific anti-discrimination acts were part and parcel of a pro-labor, more kind of uh, broadly universalist agenda, which is something that the, the left today has a difficult time squaring that kind of nuance. But it's something that very much existed in, in, recent, in recent history. Um, what happened in 1941 and what exactly was it that brought Roosevelt to sign that executive order that, that uh, accomplished many anti-discrimination uh, measures? Sure. The uh, interim executive secretary of the National Urban League, a guy named T. Arnold Hill, uh, Walter White, who is – this Walter White has nothing to do with uh, peddling <laughs> in Albuquerque, Mexico. Right. Um, but Walter White, who was the uh, head of the NAACP, and um, A. Philip Randolph, who was the president of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Carporters and had just recently resigned from his position as head of the National Negro Congress, had a meeting with President Roosevelt in which Randolph had demanded that uh, Roosevelt basically take some measures to redress the racial disparities of the day. And the racial disparities of the day that were relevant were in employment. Uh, what I guess probably most of your listeners know is that while the New Deal mitigated the Great Depression, it didn't eliminate the Great Depression, World War II did. World War II eliminated the Great Depression because it was the New Deal on steroids, right? I mean, it was, it didn't just spend money uh, as the commercial Keynesians might have wanted it to to, to do to trigger growth, right? Um, at least the commercial Keynesians decades later. What the New Deal also did is it, it uh, or sorry, world, what the government did, sorry, during World War II was that it also ponied up lots of money for job training, for subsidizing the, the building of factories and restructuring factory work uh, to make it easier for you know, workers who had been agrarian workers or, you know, been agricultural workers or workers who had, had worked in the service sector as maids or um, as waitresses or, or chauffeurs to transition from that kind of work to, to factory work. And as a result of the, the, the pre-Pearl Harbor economic growth that was taking place in the United States beginning around 1940, unemployment began to, to drop pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, in 1940. It dropped very quickly for whites. It was still unconscionably high, but it dropped pretty quickly for whites. Um, for blacks, unemployment remained uh, about the same. Uh, I want to say that the start of, uh, of 1940, uh, it was about 40%, or sorry, it was about 22%. Black unemployment was about 22%. And by the end of 1940, black unemployment was still about 22 percent, even as white unemployment had dropped several points over, you know, roughly nine month period. And so black civil rights activists were really animated about this disparity, because what was happening was defense contractors were hiring whites, but they weren't hiring black. So Randolph and Hill and Walt, uh, Walter White. Why did I call him Walt? I know why, because I've been watching Better Call Saul about <laughs> Breaking Bad. We're all, we're all like a Netflix and you know online streaming television poison at this point in the quarantine. You're, you're forgiven. 
thank you. But they, they demanded uh, that Roosevelt intervene. And what Randolph had demanded specifically was that Roosevelt take measures to end discrimination among defense contractors, right, racial discrimination, uh, to end discrimination in federal agencies, war agencies, I think, in particular, but federal agencies uh, more broadly, to end discrimination among labor unions, and, of course, finally, to desegregate the U.S. armed forces. And to, to make the case, Randolph threatened to march first 10,000 and then 100,000 blacks on the nation's capital. Ultimately, Roosevelt feared the um, specter of a march of 100,000 blacks on the nation's capital, which at the time was segregated, right? Uh, he feared that that would lead to racial conflagration, that race riots would um, arise from such an effort. And in I think it was June 25th, 1941, uh, he promulgates Executive Order 8802, which gives Randolph about half of what he asked for. Uh, it bars discrimination among defense contractors and federal agencies. And at that point, since cardinal rule of negotiation is to always ask for more than you're willing to accept, Randolph called off his march on Washington. He did keep together a March on Washington movement for a couple more years uh, to function as a kind of, um, uh, what would it be, a, to police by way of grassroots activism, the Roosevelt administration's support of the FEPC. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and the rest is history. But what's, what's really interesting about that, as you allude to, is that Randolph and black civil rights activists like Walter White or T. Arnold Hill were alive to, let's say, union discrimination, right? Since that was one of the demands, one of the four demands was to end racial discrimination among unions. But they didn't call for repeal of the National Labor Relations Act, right? They didn't call for, um, you know, repeal of the Wagner Act because some unions discriminated. Um, instead, what they called right. for was making the, the Wagner Act more equitable, right, to, to making it, it fair. They called for amending the Wagner Act to bar racial discrimination on the part of unions. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One really important one is that the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, which was the largest industrial union at the time, was for all intent and purpose a, a civil rights ally and an important civil rights ally that was shaped, of course, by uh, at least the organizing campaigns were shaped by communists. And some of the unions were themselves shaped by communists. So they had advocated racial equality and having that ally, you know, was important to those civil rights groups. They understood the value of that. But, but I think just as important is the fact that most middle class black leaders and Walter White and T. Arnold Hill would certainly qualify understood at that time, that time being the New Deal in World War II, that the majority of blacks were working class and the vision for civil rights that blacks in that era had, again, shaped by New Deal industrial democracy, or we could think of it as a social democratic impulse of the New Deal, was class oriented. How could you possibly have racial equality in a context in which the employer really has the power to treat his, in that era, employees as a dependent workforce, right? I mean, you can't have racial equality if no workers have any semblance of stability or security, because the vast majority of blacks, of course, are working class. And the vast majority of Americans 
were working class, but an even higher percentage of blacks were working class than whites. And so economic pro, you know, programs uh, and laws that bolstered the economic fortunes of working people had the potential, civil rights activists uh, and organizers and leaders understood at the, at the time, of actually benefiting blacks disproportionately, provided that they were administered equitably. So again, they called for amending the Wagner Act, not ending it. Hey, everybody, pardon this brief interruption. I hope you guys are enjoying my interview with Toure Reed. This thing is a long time coming. It is the capstone of the anti-essentialism series. I may actually be doing a couple more episodes on anti-essentialism going forward. I'm not quite sure, but this is the coup de grace, the one-two punch of Pops and Son, Adolph Reed Jr. last week for the A-side, and now Toure, his son, for, the, for, for this week's A-side. Earlier this week, I featured a B-side with Anders Lee, who is a media presenter and comedian, fellow podcast host. We talked about autism spectrum and anti-essentialism. Uh, we, we really ventured into the biomedical essentialism that I talked about with my previous guest, John West, and others. And uh, it was funny. We laughed. We cried. We had a good time. And uh, we learned something in the end of it, too. And if you're not a patron, you're going to miss that episode and all of the other B-sides that come out on a near weekly basis. So if you like this show, if you've learned anything at all from my brilliant guests week after week, if you'd like to see this thing continue far into the future, you'd like to see us expand even, grow, reach more people, perhaps, bring in these budding Berniecrats, these people who have socialist inclinations, but very little knowledge and training required to be among the socialist cadres. I encourage you to head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and become a subscriber today. I know this COVID crisis is taking its toll on a lot of you, but many of us in a very odd way are fortunate enough to maintain the bulk of our income. And some of you as well will be receiving a stimulus check on top of that. It's a mad system we've got going here. Some people are out there in the bread lines, nearly starving to death. And others of us are just kind of putzing along, sitting at home, twiddling our thumbs with, you know, the similar, similar finances that we had before. Uh, present company excluded. I know I keep throwing myself in that in that camp. I myself am filing for unemployment like uh, tens of millions of other people out there because my other uh, main source of income has been uh, put on hold for the time being. But with that being said, I need your support and your donations more than ever. That's again, that's patreon.com slash dead pundits. You guys know what to do. All right, back to this fabulous interview with Toure Reed. The second half here is really the killer. It's good. I'm really looking forward to you guys hearing this. Let me know what you thought in the comments here uh, on SoundCloud or on Patreon, either way. All right, enjoy. All right, this is a, this is a kind of nuance that you just, you certainly don't find among a lot of sort of uh, liberal commentators in the, of, of sort of black, the black political sphere. You talking, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates is a, is a favorite uh, punching bag here. And for good reason, not only because of his, the, his sort of p- the prolific nature of his writings at some point, although I got to wonder like, where the hell has he been? You know, like, he's kind of, he's kind of fallen back. Uh, you know, I don't know where he is. He had a, he had a, a back to uh back to the library moment, rethinking some of his stuff. One can only hope one can only hope that the savage critiques uh, leveled by people like yourself and uh, you know, Cedric Johnson and others have uh, forced him to kind of rethink his, his understanding of things, but who knows? Um, that's uh, I, I digress. We'll come back to that at the very, at the conclusion here. 
let's quickly move. We've talked about the the you know the uh, the way that the these institutions, organizations like the NAACP, the National Urban League, the National Negro Congress came to uh, have really s- serious impacts on the trajectories of militant trade union politics and the New Deal liberal order. But that quickly unraveled in the post-war era. You know, we, we came out of the war, th- people imagining, I would assume, you know, there are a lot of books written on this, um, a lot of New Deal socialist types who flocked to the administration were hoping to make a brand, forge a brand new society in the wake of our victory, uh, our, our difficult victory of World War II. But that would not come to pass. A very different America rose in the ashes of, of the post-World War II settlement. You talk about the Taft-Hartley Act, of course, in 1947. You talk about this um, this intransigent block in Congress com- comprised of the Republican Party and the Dixiecrats and the segregationist South that blocked all sorts of um, anti-discrimination acts, all sorts of uh, pro-labor acts. And so there's no question that the New Deal liberal order is is hobbled after World War II. And this is the foundation on which post-war racial liberalism is rewritten or rethought. And this is what the, the bulk of your book is really about. And so that's just kind of a broad general provocation to get you to sort of uh, – I mean, that, that is, did I characterize that correctly, that we're sort of on um, hobbled foundations coming out of World War II? The problem there then is this is the kind of golden era that a lot of commentators today look back to, whereas in reality, we were very much coming from a, a, a disempowered place. Yeah, um, I think it's fair to say that the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947, and this wouldn't have really been apparent, I think, at the time, was the beginning of the end. But you could even make a case that the first sign of what was to come uh, took place between 1945 and 1946. Uh, And, you know, during the New Deal, there was a a kind of tension between two different Keynesian models. You had the more progressive Keynesian model, uh, the secular stagnationists. And then you have uh, the, the model of Keynesianism that would dominate the post-war era that would be known as commercial Keynesianism. And the secular stagnationists, and I make a reference to them in the book, but I refer to them, um, or at least at, at least I refer to their ideological offspring as the labor Keynesians or um, something to that effect. But the secular stagnationists really, you know, prized intervention in labor markets, right, as essential uh, to plugging the holes in capitalism. The secular stagnationists presumed that unemployment and poverty were really the consequence, and often enough even racial inequality, were the consequence of the limitation of capitalist markets. And so the government needed to step in and redress, uh, to plug the holes uh, left by capitalism and to provide employment, let's say, and the like to working people. And in 1945, we have on the heels of President Roosevelt's second Bill of Rights in 1944, we have the Full Employment Bill of 1945, which was to guarantee, essentially, uh, to guarantee employment uh, for all Americans. And in fact, the the Full Employment Act Bill of 1945 presumed that it was the government's responsibility to provide work for Americans if the private sector 
couldn't achieve that end. It actually passed the Senate, if memory serves, but a conservative block of Republicans and Southern Democrats, you know, killed it. And instead, what we get is the Employment Act of 1946. Uh, and the Employment Act of 1946 sort of walks away from the interventionist role of government and labor markets. You know, it may be cosigns of the principle that the government should do things for the citizens, but but among those things that the government is not charged with doing anyway is guaranteeing employment uh, on the government's dime to unemployed workers. And that that employment act of 1946, which obviously precedes Taft-Hartley, which is a year later, uh, is of the same piece in many ways as Taft-Hartley, because they both represent the slow conservative turn uh, that liberals are making in the immediate aftermath, or that American liberalism, I should say, is making in the immediate aftermath of World War II. And what happens is that when we get to a kind of uh, growth-oriented take on liberalism, by which I mean the commercial Keynesian framework. Uh, The commercial Keynesian framework presumes that government certainly should steward the nation's macro economy, but it should do so really by things like tax cuts, right? Uh, And and stimulating growth, which is going to include, you know, deficit spending when all is said and done. Uh, But what it shouldn't do is intervene if it can avoid it, in labor markets. And where that's relevant to your point is that while in the Second World War and certainly the New Deal, uh, many liberals across racial lines and certainly leftists viewed racial inequality through the lens of um, you know, the limitations of American capitalism. In the aftermath of World War II, American capitalism and the free enterprise system, as they, they used to refer to it as, was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And so you couldn't really talk about racial inequality, or at least it was harder to talk about racial inequality as the product of the limitations of American capitalism, uh, because that would be a conceit that American capitalism actually played a pretty significant role in things like, I don't know, Jim Crow uh, or or crop lean, which would be pretty obvious, or even the development of uh, the factory system played a role in the trajectory of slavery, right? I mean, all these things were pretty obvious limitations of capitalism and certainly obvious limitations of of market economies. But but such narratives ran afoul of Cold War hegemony. So instead, what you get is the embrace of constructs of about inequality that center on culture and or race often enough by another name. So ethnic pluralism, as you mentioned, is a clear example of that. Uh, culture of poverty is a variation on the same theme. And in the post-war era, while liberals, you know, reflexively embrace race as a biological construct. What they tended to coalesce around was this kind of ethnic pluralist framework that, that again, rhetorically rejected the utility of race and instead presumed that ethnic group culture was sort of the engine of society, not race, but ethnic group culture. But the way that ethnic pluralists talked about culture uh, or even ethnic group culture more narrowly, people like you know, famed immigration historian Oscar Hanlon 
or more importantly, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who I'm sure we'll talk about, the way that they talked about culture was actually a lot more like race because they presumed that ethnic groups maintain an essence of some sort. So there's essentialism for you, right? But they made the, they, they presumed that ethnic groups maintained an, an ethnic essence that was, you know, largely impervious to external stimuli, right? To environmental influences. And culture can't be <laughs> impervious to environmental influences unless what you mean by culture is something that's more like race, something that's biological, uh, or at least what race is supposed to be, I should say, something that's biological or quasi-biological. So we get, you know, explanations for the ascendancy of ethnic groups in the post-war era that centered less and less on the centrality of the New Deal welfare state, right, which, which made it easier for them to join labor unions, for example, which bolstered their wages or which made it easier for them to buy houses or that subsidized the development of the suburbs which they would eventually move to and buy those houses as they followed jobs from the central cities to the suburbs and then hinterlands, right? It's less about that. It's less about state action than ethnic group culture. And on the flip, for poor people, for poor blacks in particular, more and more of the discussion of racial inequality would center on what we would know as cultural poverty, the cultural poverty thesis, right? The alleged cultural deficiencies of poor people, but poor black people, um, you know, matters for us when we get to the war on poverty. Right, right. And this is really, you know, the meat of the book. And I hate that we've gone so far in the interview now to, to where we're just really getting to the good stuff. We can't, we can't unfortunately make this a three, four hour, uh, a beast of an interview. So we're going to have to blaze through this stuff, but I encourage once again, people to pick up this book. I mean, if, if our conversation is a little dry and having nothing to do with you to but having to do with my presentation of how I wanted to cover this stuff very methodically going back to the early 20th century, minutia of, you know, black political institutions. Uh, we could have, we could have made this thing a little bit more lively. We could have talked about, you know, we could have gotten in there in the fray with Obama and Coates and, and Reagan. But I wanted to go back to the roots of this stuff. And so it was a little drier than perhaps it could have been. But I want to assure my listeners that this book is not dry. It is really not. It's it's very topical. It's very current. Um, it's it, it goes in depth and it doesn't skirt any of the serious nuance required or the histor- historical specificity. But at the same time, I think it's written for a lay audience, a, a lay audience that's serious about getting into this stuff and has the patience to work through the history and the various acronyms and all the rest of it. But uh but, you know, this really stands at the intersection of what everything that, that, that this podcast is about. You know, I started this thing three years ago. And as people will know, there's really three main currents that run through almost every one of my episodes. And that is, of course, socialist sort of socialist strategy, right? Socialist politics and socialist strategy. Like, how do we get there, right? Uh, and, and then the next two are incredibly salient with our conversation here, which is obviously the anti-essentialist stream. And then, of course, the state theory stream. And this is where ethnic pluralism becomes really, really interesting for me to Ray, because it stands really starkly at that intersection between anti-essentialism or anti-race reductionism or race reductionism in general and state theory. Because as you as you sort of briefly remark in your book, and I'm sure you've gone into much more detail in, in other writings about this, but they, they take as as their starting point the state theory of Robert Dahl liberal state, liberal theorist, liberal political economist who understands the, the pluralist state as a, a sort of a neutral playing ground uh, on, on which these various interest groups vie for, for power, for, for dominance, for influence. And the suggestion of the ethnic pluralists, whether they knew it or, 
that whether they knew they were or not, whether you're talking about o- Oscar Hanlon, who's doing so as in a very conscious, conscientious way and uh, intentional way, or you think about Monaghan or even people who are doing it far more unconsciously, but quite explicitly, you know, people like Stokely Carmichael. It's all ethnic pluralism all the way down. It's turtles all the way down. Ethnic pluralism all the way down. Um, <laughs> spell that out for our listener here, because this stuff is just really, really interesting to me. I think our, our listeners will like it as well. Well, the the gist is, so from the, the Dahl uh, pluralist framework, which presumes that in American democracy, um, that no one group can dominate the process, which is you know, absurd, right? I mean, I, 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 it was a fascinating construct. So you begin with Dahl and that framework that America is a society that has been comprised of, of pluralities of interest groups. Uh, and that because of these pluralities of interest groups, again, the system works because no one group can actually dominate. That, of course, that framework, which once again is a kind of post-war understanding of of uh, American democracy that is exceptional, um, that framework meshes with sort of post-war culturalist understandings of the world. And the ethnic pluralists then make the case that ethnic groups rise and fall on the basis of their cultural attributes. Uh, And what that does is that shifts the focus away from the central role of state action in shaping the successes of some some elements of American society and and the failures or of, of others, it shifts shifts again the focus away from state action towards individuals or groups of individuals cast as ethnic groups, right? So it allows policymakers, you could say liberals in general, to look past the deficiencies of American capitalism. Uh, which are what they are, right? Capitalism has to have losers, right? I mean, there's a small number of winners and a large number of losers. During the post-war era, there was also this sort of intermediate class of mid-range winners, right? A growing middle class, uh, which is obviously now shrinking. But nevertheless, the system has to have a lot of losers. And um, instead of treating that as a systemic problem, the way that the left. Uh, elements of the New Deal uh, had viewed it, right? The, the secular the secular stagnationists who I'd mentioned previously, then this becomes a problem of the feelings of individuals. So that's going to shape the scope of the war on poverty. Um, that's going to ultimately set the stage for the war on crime, for what it's worth, and a host of other issues that will come down the line to where we are now. Now, I may not have given enough attention to that that point. You tell me, Adam. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, – I'm sorry. Which point exactly? The the point you ended on there? Yeah. Did I cover what you wanted me to cover? Oh, just in terms of my – it was a broad provocation. Like I said, sometimes I like to just kind of give broad provocation to scholars and kind of see how you guys like to frame it. Uh, Whether if I I frame it first, uh, you know, it it sort of boxes you into a corner. I like to see where where you'd like to take it. So now that you've taken in that direction, let's go more explicitly to – the the seeds we're getting back to the beginning we're circling back here in the in the management speak <laughs> all right we're getting back to to the the real the real um the meat of the argument which is that this is where the roots of so-called black radical politics are born right this ethnic plural model that Stokely Carmichael 
uh, kind of understanding that if if we are going to proclaim black power for ourselves, uh, that we are, um, you know, that we have we as a nation, as an entity, as an ethnicity, uh, have uh, are, are owed self determination. Uh, we have to enter the public arena. This this allegedly neutral state, <laughs> which is bizarre for you know self avowed Marxist to, to maintain, but that's that's what that's this kind of incongruity, this incompatibility of the theory, the foundational theories and the tactics uh, with the with the stated aims is what what you know this this show is all about. And um, talk about that incongruity there. The fact that Stokely Carmichael is battling in this allegedly neutral field that is the pluralistic state of Robert Dahl and other liberal theorists. And 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 also too, obviously, I mean, to, it goes without saying that the understanding of 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 the you know the black population in America at that time as a class-free uh, constituency is one that that you and others like Cedric Johnson have have torn to shreds, and rightly so. Uh, but but take us to that moment. Sure. I mean, well, that that highlights the hegemony of post-war liberalism. And, and I should say that highlights Carmichael's embrace of a pluralist construct, highlights the hegemony of post-war race reductionism, uh, you could say, the tendency to, the, the ethnic pluralist tendency to impute racial qualities, right, to biological or quasi-biological qualities to ethnic groups. It certainly presumes, I think, as you touched upon, uh, that blacks have a, you know, trans class interest that for all intent and purpose, black politics is shaped by a racial ethnic group sensibility that trumps no pun intended class. And, you know, the fact that Carmichael embraced it in the 60s and embraced it being the ethnic pluralist framework, you know, on some level makes him human. Right. They don't call it hegemony for nothing, which, by the way, was originally the introduction. The, the title of my introduction was originally they don't call it hegemony for nothing. <laughs> anyway, the fact that Carmichael embraced the ethnic pluralist framework, I think, is a really good example of the hegemonic sway of the framework. And it also offers some window onto the limitations of black power in that moment. Or at least a, a, maybe a better way to put it is that that Carmichael and a host of other black powerites embrace of ethnic pluralism highlights a the extent to which black people are in fact shaped by their proximate historical influences. Right, that black people are like everyone else, uh, social beings who are shaped by their own zeitgeist. But but the B point there is that we also get a sense that of the conservatism of black power, right? Or at least some of the conservative elements of black power, because, you know, the fact of the matter is, and I think that's in some ways it's more obvious today, whether or not we choose to acknowledge this is a different matter than it was 70 years ago. But, but, but black people across class lines don't really have the same <laughs> material interests. I mean, I, in the 1990s, and I'll go with an anecdote, in the 1990s, I had, uh, this will be the mid to late 90s, I'd gotten into a number of arguments with fellow well-educated middle-class black Gen Xers about Bill Clinton, right? And whether or not Clintonism was our friend. And Clinton's 
having co-signed, having signed welfare reform and uh, even the Omnibus Crime Act was something that many middle class blacks, and I'll, I'll focus more on the welfare reform piece here, but that many middle class blacks were indifferent to at the time or better yet embraced because for them, you know, AFDC, which Bill Clinton signed, you know, out of existence in 1996, AFDC didn't really affect them. They didn't collect it. And of course, they being products of, you know, the, the Reagan revolution, um, and these are my peers, you know, embraced the welfare queen trope, right? Because black people are shaped by their zeitgeist just like everyone else. It may play out a little differently. Uh, but nevertheless, you can see the influences. And of course, that was true in the 1960s. Uh, so the fact that, again, Carmichael embraced the kind of ethnic pluralist framework, uh, and, and he wasn't alone, highlights the hegemony of post-war, the conservative bent of post-war liberalism, the retreat from class-based politics, uh, and of course, the kind of conservatism of racial nationalism more broadly, but a conservative uh, often overlooked element in black power. Wait, so I don't know, though, Ture. I mean, that all makes sense to me, but I've seen a lot of T-shirts and memes out these days that talk about black girl magic. So are you suggesting that black people aren't magical and they are indeed, in fact, uh, influenced by their class, social and cultural, uh, dominant cultural hegemonic uh, structures? Is that what you <laughs> That's crazy. That's wild. I, I would suggest that. Yes, that's that's reactionary. I, I, I'd like to stand against that here formally on the air today. <laughs> but anyway, uh, this is this is all really important stuff. And, you know, we've got we've got to wrap this up, unfortunately, very soon. You know, there, this we've only gotten about halfway through the argument. But I did this somewhat um, strategically and also somewhat provocatively, provocatively, because in my limited capacity to assess the. Uh, the state of the left today, the state of the socialist left today. And I say this with love because a lot of these people that I'm about to criticize are my comrades, people who otherwise I think are, are really intelligent and inspirational and doing incredible work to advance the socialist cause. And I say this with love, but a lot of the people who would read perhaps your final two or three chapters and be nodding along in agreement, your critiques of the Monaghan report and the, and the troubled way that uh, black politics and our understanding of the underclass and, and, and social policy emerges from that moment. Although compared to today, it's pretty revolutionary, but I digress. Uh, <laughs> we could talk about how actually radical the Monaghan report is compared to what we've got today, but that's another story. But it's still fraught and and uh, highly problematic and, and it has certain types of trajectories that lead us to the kind of neoliberal uh, racialist discourse that we suffer from today. And then even more people would read your your article on Obama and Coates and, and the, you know, the essay that that came from in Catalyst and nod along in agreement and suggest that Coates is sort of, I think that reparations thing is okay, but, but uh, Coates is probably just a liberal. So we need reparations from a socialist perspective or something that they would sort of like triangulate and equivocate you know, that argument away. But unfortunately, a lot of these people who would nod along with those two arguments somehow still miss the more foundational argument. The more foundational argument, which is that what they see as the gold standard of radical black politics, of radical emancipatory politics, is actually the result of a series of defeats and a series of, of, of triangulations and equivocations 
that led to it, that, that, you know, spring from also these kind of wrongheaded and um, incongruous theories about ethnic pluralism and, and state pluralism and, and all the rest of it. And so I really wanted to be sure that we cover that stuff and that we, we center that argument before moving on to the a real very brief gloss, unfortunately, here at the end of, of the more kind of contemporary, um, the contemporary import of this stuff on our, on our politics today. Does that make sense? Do you, do you sort of find that to be true? Yeah, well, I, I have been struck, like a lot of people, by the sudden appeal of reparations. And um, it, it's the clearest expressions of the conservatism that undergirds the appeal of reparations in the moment, maybe, is the fact that in the last couple few years, in the Trump years, David Brooks has written a couple few pieces that that describe himself as a reparations convert. <laughs> and it's I'd planned on writing an article on that because it was, again, for me, the the clearest expression of the conservative underpinnings of reparations. And and that isn't to say that many of the black Americans who embrace reparations, at the very least rhetorically, are consciously coming at it from a conservative vantage point. Uh, I, I think it's pretty apparent that consciously none of them imagine, or at least very few of, of the black Americans who embrace reparations see it as a conservative agenda. They see it, I think, certainly as militant, and that, that I'll definitely co-sign, but also often enough radical. But the militancy is transparent. The radicalism, I think, is shaped in part by a failure the, the assumption that reparations represents a radi- radical agenda is shaped in part by the failure to appreciate, you know, not just the history of New Deal politics or post-war politics and their limitations, right? Because Coates's narrative is shaped by some mischaracterizations, I think, of New Deal liberalism and its limitations and post-war liberalism and, and its limitations. And he's right. They're both limited. He just misidentifies the source of their limitations. But, but I think, you know, the, as reparations is often framed, it really kind of comes down to a sort of intra-group uh, racial wealth management project. Very few people are making the case for cutting a check to the 40-something million blacks in the United States for reparations. And, and that would be reparations, right? If, if that, I think, is reasonably understood as reparations. There are some who make that case, like, Hashtag ADOS makes this case. Marianne Williamson made that case. I, I think Sandy Darity must make some version of that case. Oh, for uh, sure. He's kind of the godfather. ADOS being uh, American descendants of slaves, this movement that allegedly certifies people who would be eligible for uh, reparations. It's led to an, a, a lot of just ah chauvinistic, unspeakably chauvinistic uh, attitudes around – attitudes towards say, you know, South American, Central American immigrants. I mean, it's disgusting anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you have some who are making the case for what's reasonably understood as reparations. Most though, and this gets us, this will get us back to David Brooks and we could even fold in Elizabeth Warren if you want. Most are making a case more for something on the spectrum. Again, 
of the black power model in which funds would be made available, if you will, to some interest block uh, representing black people. And we would get some form of trickle down as, as a result. So Elizabeth Warren, for example, had proposed, you know, what was in effect um, fast tracking funds for for black businesses, for small businesses that are minority owned with an expectation that black small business people would necessarily be better to black would, would a employ black workers and b that they would necessarily employ black workers at a living wage with benefits and not subject them to wage theft because you know all black people have the same interests at heart so black bosses don't screw over black employees i've had black bosses <laughs> and i've had white bosses i've had yeah. multiple types of bosses bosses generally speaking you know, suck, right? I mean, because your boss always wants more work out of you for less money. Uh, and they want more work out of you than you want to put forth. And you, and they want to pay you less than you want to make, right? That's just the nature of being a boss. So, you know, I'm not remotely persuaded that that, that would work. But the fact, again, that this is what we get as reparations and that this is rebranding policies that often enough have a proven track record of failure, means-tested programs, or again, loans to small businesses that will trickle down to the masses. Um, the fact that those those types of policies are rebranded as reparations and that their interest in reparation blew up really around the Sanders campaign, right? I mean, yes, Coates authored the case for reparations uh, a couple few years before, you know, Senator Sanders had announced his bid for uh, the Democratic nomination. But I think that the appeal of reparations as a construct really mainstreamed, um, not just as part of the backlash to post-racialism, right, in the last years of Obama's second term, that's part of it, no question about it, not just with the Trump presidency, and that's part of it, but there's that in-between moment where Sanders obviously makes the case for the best of New Deal liberalism and embraced race actually as a social construct uh, and thus viewed racism through the lens of labor and housing markets rather than this ontological force. Um, and what do we get in response to this from, from the likes of people like Hillary Clinton, uh, who had no shame in this context? But an insistence that Sanders was a class reductionist and instead what we needed was targeted programs, targeted programs coming from uh, a candidate in 2016 whose husband ran on a Democratic platform that included a pledge to mend but not end affirmative action, which constituted Clinton. It doesn't sound as bad in the abstract as it actually is. But, but Bill Clinton's call for mending rather than ending affirmative action. And I'm glad he didn't want to end it. But the mend wasn't necessary because the mend itself was a capitulation to a right wing lie that affirmative action was quotas. Right. So so her husband, of course, obviously signed into law the Omnibus Crime Act. And, and she had the nerve in 2016 to suggest that she learned her lesson. <laughs> about <laughs> systemic racism yeah. uh, at the same, you know, from that experience, right? 
uh, and at the same time, you know, counseled against banking regulations, claiming that that wouldn't do anything to to you know stave off systemic racism. But her husband's deregulation of the banking industry, uh, with the repeal of Glass Steagall, was was the backdrop for the housing crisis that impacted blacks disproportionately. Right. Right. Um, so you can see the way that this kind of that frameworks like reparations or structural or systemic racism or whatever, um, implicit bias even have been used to counter calls for progressive redistributive programs that would benefit blacks disproportionately because blacks are overrepresented among the working class and the poor. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. A lot, lot to chew on here. I mean, this, this, this has been a tough interview for me because this book is so rich and there's so many places to go. And, and, and the way my brain works, I don't, I don't sort of script questions. I don't sit down. If people couldn't tell, it's probably uh, glaringly obvious. But I don't – unlike some of my uh, more careful and systematic colleagues uh, who interview people like yourself every week, I like to keep things flowing and lively and organic and emergent. Uh, but this has been a tough one because there's so many places to go. It's so rich. And, and, and historical and strategic and theoretical and practical kind of considerations. But the thing that I that for myself, and I'm going to give you the last word, of course, because uh, this is a political tract as much as it is a, a scholarly one. Um, and quite, quite uh, intentionally, I would say this, this entire imprint, this uh, Jacobin Verso series is, is bent in that direction very, very explicitly so. Um, but the point that I'd like to push is just let's get off it. I think we've made a lot of progress, and I'm speaking to the left here, the, the socialist left, my audience, the Jacobin left, the, 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 the DSA left. We've made a tremendous amount of progress in, in disabusing ourselves of, 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 um, of jettisoning the worst elements of our race reductionism over the past two or three years. And I mean that. Uh, there are a lot of people who used to be in my audience who are really, really won over to the anti-essentialism series part one that I did now almost two and a half, three years ago. Uh, who who have distanced themselves from me? Uh, you know this kind of silly online kind of Twitter Facebook drama that that uh, unfolds, and and they suggest that I'm overly optimistic that uh, it's just a bunch of rad libs that control the DSA. They they're on the socialist left, and they're all horrifically essentializing and race reductionist, and and they've they've learned no lessons. I I wholeheartedly disagree. I've said as much in in many places. I think the left is well on its way up the learning curve. And I think the Sanders movement did a tremendous amount to help uh, clarify the vision of people in that respect. But there's one hang up and your book really nails that hang up. And so I just would encourage people, if you're still looking back to that post-war ethnic pluralist charged era as the the so-called golden era of emancipatory radicalism, get off it, mate. As my friends over in the UK would say, get off it, mate. Uh, it's a it's an incredibly fraught period. Uh, it's incredibly contradictory and incongruous period that we should study and understand. Not not completely just you know write off entirely, but we need to understand it. And your book really offers a lot of uh, of tools and lessons and and historical examples in order for us for us to do that. Um, that's my takeaway from this episode from from reading this book. What's your takeaway? You, this is clearly an, a political intervention. What mark would you like to leave on the on the world after after releasing a book like this one? Well, um, that is a tough question, but a good one. And um, and if if we had the video feed, you would see the face that I pulled when I said, "But a good one." But it is a, <laughs> a good question. 
my funny face, the funny face that I pulled notwithstanding. I guess the, the takeaway for me that I would like the audience uh, or the readership to, to walk away with is that, you know, we've got a lot of misconceptions about the past. I think a lot of us imagine that as we, this is not true for the Jacobin audience, I'm sure, but a lot of us imagine that as we move forward in time, things necessarily get better. And um, really, the only thing that happens for sure is that you have to buy a new calendar by, you know, January, right, of each year. And maybe if you're lucky, you get a little older. Yeah, we get, we get some wrinkles. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, right. But, but in some ways, I think it's, it's apparent that things are better. In other ways, they're not, right? In, in other ways, you know, things are worse. And we have, of course, turned our back on blueprints. And there are blueprints for progress, for a more equitable society, or I might even say a more democratic society. Whatever the New Deal's limitations, and, and there were plenty of limitations that were, that were part of New Deal liberalism, it did, it was foundational to the civil rights movement. It was foundational to the expansion of the American middle class. And the foundation, uh, you know, the, the key element of the New Deal for the growth of the middle class and, and uh, you know, the, the development and maturation of the modern civil rights movement was a notion that government should work on behalf of the citizenry, Right. In the New Deal era and World War II era, the function of government on behalf of the citizenry was for economic stability, uh, maybe a certain amount of, of, of fairness and democracy in the workplace. And even as, as Americans would sort of start to turn away from that aspect of New Deal liberalism during the Cold War, still vestiges of it lingered on. The union movement was still strong really until the, the 70s, or at least relatively strong until until the 70s, right? Um, if not 80s. Um, I think most Americans for quite a while presumed that the workplace should be fair, uh, that if profits were up, that was, that should not be the pretext for your boss firing you to please stockholders. That would come later, right? That would come with the Reagan revolution. And those are, you know, good things within the context of capitalism. Um, the vilification of the public good function of government, right, or at least ignoring the fact that that the New Deal helped usher in a model of govern governance that was the benefit of working people, but to racial minorities as well. And often enough, you couldn't disentangle the two. Ignoring that reality has not served us well. What was great about the Sanders campaign, though, was at least for me, and I think you and a lot of other people who have some historical understanding of um, the American, of the last century of the United States, um, what was great about it is that it made clear his success is within the Democratic primary, uh, made clear that a lot of Americans, even many Americans who were not aware of this this past of ours, of a, of a better um, society, in, in many ways, a lot of Americans were moved by a call for a return to a public good model of governance in which the government worked on behalf of the citizenry. And the citizenry, in this case, I don't mean the billionaires or even the millionaires. I mean, middle class, working class and poor people. So there is, as you say, Adam, cause for some optimism, um, even if 
things don't look great right now, and not just because of the novel coronavirus pandemic. Well, the, once again, the book is Towards Freedom. I always want to say Towards Freedom. I guess that's – you could say Towards and Toward. Is that right? That's just uh, author preference, a little editorial remark there, I believe. I'm not, I'm not so sure. The editors, uh, get at me. The book is Toward Freedom, no S. The Case Against Race Reductionism. It's out from Verso Press just uh, this month or last month. But either way, hot off the presses. Again, Toure Reed is professor of 20th century U.S. and Afro-American history at Illinois State University. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for joining us on DPS. Thanks for having me. This has been such a long time coming, as you mentioned from the start. 